0: Mark Solms grew up in South Africa, but came to Britain to pursue his career in neuroscience. He explains to Michael Barclay why he followed this career, and also he talks about his
1: interest in wine production in South Africa. Mark Soms is a neuroscientist who spent his whole career investigating the mysteries of consciousness. His research throws light on some of the most difficult questions of all. How does the mind connect to the body? Why does it feel like something to be you? Born in Namibia and educated in South Africa, he came to Britain in his late 20s to avoid military service under the apartheid regime. He made his name with research into what happens in the brain, when we're dreaming. Then he startled his scientific colleagues by training as a psychoanalyst, something which, he says, put me at odds with the rest of my field. He's now very unusual in holding eminent positions within both psychoanalysis and scientific research. He's the author of six books and divides his time between London and Cape Town, where he also pursues his other career as a winemaker. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Mark, and I'm not sure whether to start with wine or dreams or perhaps a combination of the two. Yes, I too don't know
2: where to start. <laughs> um, you said I startled my colleagues, when I, my neuroscientific colleagues, when I decided to train as an analyst. What one of them actually said to me was, you can't do that. That's like an astronomer training in astrology. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Can I take you back to the beginning, Mark Soms, and why you decided to become a doctor specialising in the brain? I think this was sparked, really, by a very traumatic event in your childhood when you were playing outside with your brother.
2: Yes. Um, my, my brother was six. I was four at the time. Our parents were yachting, um, as they often did. We were playing in the clubhouse. My brother clambered up onto the roof, tripped and fell Six meters uh, onto a concrete pavement below. Fractured his skull, sustained a, a, a bleed in his brain, uh, required emergency surgery. Survived, thank God. Uh, but uh, the brain, being what it is, uh, as I learnt on you know that fateful day, um, when, when my brother came back, uh, he looked the same, but he wasn't the same, and that. That that must be why I became interested, not only in the brain, but also in the relationship between the brain and the mind. How how can it be that, where's my brother gone to? Who's this guy? Uh, and the shock of it, the, the it was an uncanny, very distressing and
1: disturbing experience. Mm. This event, uh, I think, put you into quite a deep depression, didn't it? It did. Um, I think that the,
2: at one level, it's just I, I missed my brother. He was, uh, we lived in a small village and um, we remained rather aloof from the other villages for all sorts of complicated reasons. And so my brother was very much my best friend. And so, you know, I lost him in that ordinary way. Um, the thought that I came to, and again, I I want to repeat that I think we underestimate what sorts of things children think about. Uh, But the thought that I came to was, what's the point of doing anything? You know, if I am just my body, and my body is a mortal thing, and it's, it's going to disappear, then what is the point of, you know, whatever I've achieved, it's all from my point of view, going to come to nothing. And, you know, no matter how much I might enjoy my life, um, it's it's a finite thing, and that enjoyment, once gone, is gone and gone forever. So it was a sort of nihilistic despair uh, that that overcame me. And uh, I mean, I just just so that our listeners know what what we're talking about, I remember literally not being able to f- summon the energy to put my shoes and socks on in the morning to go to school. It just seemed like too much effort, and 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 something that that you know that was was not worth doing.
1: Is there, is there possibly an element of guilt here that, that you survived and that to a certain extent you've alleviated that by helping others with brain injuries? Well, you should
2: uh, be a psychoanalyst, Michael, because <laughs> uh, that, that is exactly uh, correct. Uh, but it took me years to work that out in retrospect. Um, the the guilt that you referred to wasn't so much that I survived, uh, as that I was cleverer than my brother. Things came easily to me uh, academically. For him, everything was a struggle. And so, you know, you feel proud of your achievements at school. uh, But in my case, every time I did well, it was a source of pain. The solution to that conflict was if I study neuroscience, and in particular, if I'm a clinician in this area, helping people like my brother, then I can do well without feeling bad about it.
1: I would like to indulge your desire to dream by playing next a piece that I know you love, which is um, A Nocturne by Chopin. Why this? Well, two aspects of what we've been
2: talking about. Uh, The one is the relationship between music and affect, music and feeling. There's a sort of melancholy that's conveyed in this nocturne and also something of the time of night uh, that such music should be played. But there's also a reference back to Bach, uh, a deep reference back to Bach. Chopin loved Bach and built, again, again, what we were speaking about earlier of building upon what came before
1: Jan Liszewski playing Chopin's Nocturne in F-sharp major from a recording released earlier this year.
2: Well, it was, you know, when I first went back to South Africa, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I left in the 1980s because those days uh, white young white men were conscripted into the South African army. Uh, but then there were all these miraculous changes that none of us foresaw, and so uh, I, I went back with an sort of inchoate idea that I, I, I want to, you know, I owe this place something and I want to contribute to the reconstruction and development of the country. But it's easier said than done, you know. It's <laughs> how do you actually go about doing that? So I took over the farm. At, literally, I'm sorry to use this phrase, but it's the correct one. It comes with people. You know, they're people who live on my land. And uh, so I felt very uneasy becoming this It's sort of feudal still, this set up there. So I, I met with the people who live on the farm and, and uh, discussed with them how we might change things. And one thing led to another. It was very hard. Uh, they were too scared to speak to me about what they really thought, if they even had articulated thoughts about how we might transform the farm, because this is just not the sort of thing... That 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 they ever expected would happen. So we brought archaeologists and historians in and literally dug the place up so that we could together see how, you know, how did it happen that we're living in the way that we are, that we don't trust each other, don't feel safe with each other, can't be on the same side. And so that led to these kind of very obvious diagnoses. It's all about who owns the land. They're poor compared to me because of that history. How do you put that right? Well, you know, you've got to do something like give the land back. And then you face the limits of your own ethical uh, goodness, you know, because it's not so easy to give. I, I, you know, I wanted to pass this farm on to my children as, as it was to me. But it's wrong, you know. How we acquired it—it's—it's it's, it's basically uh, criminal what happened all those generations ago. So we came up with a solution of buying the farm next door, borrowing money, mortgaging my farm, and and a friend of mine, a neighbour, we mortgaged our farms uh, so that we could buy a third farm, so that the workers could own a piece of land every bit as big and beautiful and historic as our own. And then we formed a partnership. But I I have to tell you, I'm sorry I'm speaking so much, but I have to tell you it's not been plain sailing. (laughs) Uh, The 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 story of South Africa, wonderful as it is in terms of the miraculous transition that came in the nineties, that story is not yet um, hasn't yet led to the happy ending that we were all Idealistically and optimistically uh, expecting. We're still working at it. It's, a, it's
1: difficult. Would you say that these good intentions and indeed good actions have led to a better wine? I do think <laughs> so. Um,
2: I, I'm, I'm not advertising my wine when I say so because, you know, you, you can't even get it here uh, in, in, in Britain. So uh, it, it's, I, I truly am not advertising it. I'm saying something of more general importance. I think that wine is a handmade product and um, it's not made by me, the owner. It's made by the workers in the vineyards and the workers in the cellar. And uh, there's an enormous amount of care that goes into the picking of the grapes and the sorting of the grapes and the tending of the wine in the barrels as it matures and so on. And if that's done with resentment and bitterness and, you know, and more, it's going to obviously affect what's in the bottle, if it's made with a sense of of pride and ownership, and you know, and that that this is a good thing that we're doing. You know, it's like a, a chef in the kitchen. You make something with love uh, and care. It's it tastes different than if
1: you just you know bang it all together with a minimum of, of effort you can't make good wine if the workers feel resentment hatred and i wonder if that applies to a certain extent to all creative work does it apply to scientific research for instance i think that
2: a, the pursuit of truth and that's a, a that's an easy phrase but you know I, I i assume that most of us know what it really refers to what we're all aspiring to some and, and in my own research you know, what I've been trying to understand about what is it to exist? Why are we aware of our own existence at all? Uh, what, what is that awareness for? What does it mean? How does it work? You know, to the, the pursuit of these sorts of questions. It is, if not a loving thing, it's certainly not an I can't imagine how could you do it in a state of anger, you know, and, and destructiveness. It's trying to build something. It's it's trying to understand. It's and science and 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 music, and medicine. You know, and when I say music, I suppose all the arts, and I would include wine production. In wine is a sort of art form for the palate. Um, you know, we're all in it together, and we're all trying to get to the bottom of it. And uh, things go wrong. Things go horribly wrong. Um, and that's what those negative feelings are for. But I think that uh, these sorts of pursuits go in the other direction. It's the corrective, it's a, a, a reparative, trying to make things all right.
0: I cannot tell how we angels were ashamed should stoop to love the peoples of the earth. Upon the cross was broken the crown of pain to three and thirty years. But this I know he heals the broken hearted and stays the sin. lifts the burden from the heavy laden for yet the Savior, Savior of the world is here I cannot tell how he will win the nations how he will claim satisfy the needs and aspirations of east and west of sinner and of sage but this I know that day your stars shall shine in splendor when he the Savior, Savior of the world is known I cannot tell how all the But you-
3: Yeah Is said
0: Gentis has produced a series of programs on Bible characters. Today we hear the latest installment on the life of Moses, from the point of view of
4: Pharaoh. If you want to know the strength of something, look no further than at the top. The leadership will determine whether it grows or collapses, eats or starves, flourishes or collapses. And the leader, I'm Pharaoh of this great empire. Look at my son's face, how he plays with other children. He hasn't a care in the world, but one day he will take my place on the throne and the awesome weight of authority for the kingdom of Egypt will rest on his shoulders. There's a man amongst the Hebrew slaves named Moses, a peculiar man. He was, in fact, raised in the palace during the reign of my father. The Hebrews had become too numerous, so we thinned their numbers, so to speak. Our soldiers made sure that any male babies were killed once they were born. Cruel, you say? It would seem so, but what would have happened if my father hadn't taken such measures? The Hebrews would have overrun the land. Moses' mother put him in a basket and set it on the river, hoping someone merciful would find the child. Well, they found it. My dear tender-hearted sister was bathing in the Nile when she saw this baby and her heart. Melt. She decided to raise him as her own son. Since she was far from the royal succession, We tolerated her whims and allowed her to raise Moses in the palace. In time, this Moses learned of his Hebrew roots, and he had sympathy for them. On one of our construction sites, he witnessed an Egyptian foreman beating a Hebrew slave and challenged him and killed him. So, fearing that my father would have him arrested, Moses left Egypt in haste, and I didn't see him again for 40 years. Really, I don't know where we're going if we can't even beat a slave anymore. Now, Moses has returned, and he leads this slave rabble. And he's making demands of me, Pharaoh, the king of all the known world. You may ask why I don't just have him executed. The slaves have always been discontented, and I intend to make an example of him. If I kill him, that will just make a martyr. But if I demonstrate the absolute futility of resistance to my authority, the others will take note. He wants to take the people out in the desert to sacrifice to his God. I don't believe a word of it. He wants them all to escape. Then, who would build our cities and palaces and harvest our crops? There have always been slaves and there will always be slaves. Is it just? Absolutely. What would an inferior slave, no better than any animal, do with freedom? Moses came to the palace to show what his God could do. So... He threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. It was amusing, so I called my magicians to show this Moses what they could do. They did exactly the same thing with their staffs, and the serpents fought each other. There was a good fight, and Moses' serpents beat the others. So I said to him, Is that all you can do? He left the palace humiliated. The next time I saw him was on the banks of the river one morning. He cried out, Let my people go that they may serve me, says the Lord. He then said God was going to turn the waterways of Egypt to blood. As he raised his staff, the water began to turn red, and the fish in the waterways died. But you know, my magicians were able to do the same thing. So I answered him, I will not let your people go. After these events, these plagues started happening quickly. First came the frogs, multiplying everywhere. But our magicians were able to do this as well but they weren't able to make them go away. So I asked Moses to take away the frogs from Egypt and that I would let them go into the desert and he told me to choose the day that the frogs would be gone. I asked for tomorrow and it was done as he said. The next plague was a huge invasion of insect, and for the first time our magicians approached me and admitted that this time they couldn't replicate the event and that this was done by the hand of God. Then the plagues came one after another There was the death of our cattle, then painful infected boils on everyone. After that, a hailstorm that destroyed our crops. And if that weren't enough, the land was ravaged by locusts, who left nothing green in all the land. Then even my staunchest allies implored me to let these people go, or we would be destroyed. I still refused, sure that things would return to normal. The plague that was the most disturbing was the darkness. There was total darkness, and I couldn't distinguish my hand in front of my face three whole days. Finally, I summoned Moses, telling him that he could take his people into the wilderness, but only they must leave their flocks behind. He was adamant in his refusal, insisting that he had to take them all. He refuses my clemency, his pharaoh, his sovereign. Naturally, I sent him away and told him, don't you ever come back. Now, this Moses is threatened what he calls the last plague. He claims his God is going to kill every firstborn in all the land of Egypt tonight, in every household, even right down to the cattle. I think our armies might have something to say about that. If you want to know the strength of something, look no further than at the top. I, Pharaoh Ramses II, will determine what lives or dies. I must be off now and inspect the troops. Afterwards, I think I'll go and see my son. After all, he will be the next pharaoh."
5: Thirty-four, Albert Mcmakin, a twenty-four-year-old farmer, became a Christian. He was so full of enthusiasm that he filled a truck with people and took them to a meeting to hear about Jesus. There was a good-looking farmer's son who Albert especially wanted to get to the meeting, but this young man was difficult to persuade. He was too busy falling in and out of love with different girls. He didn't seem too interested in Christianity. Eventually, Albert managed to persuade him to come by asking him to drive the truck. When they arrived, Albert's guest decided to go in and found himself spellbound by the teaching from the Bible. He began to have thoughts he had never known before. He went back each night to the meeting to hear more, until one night his life changed as he became a follower of Christ. The young truck driver was called Billy Graham. Billy Graham is the big name in this story, but the one who moves his story forward was Albert McMaken, who asked him to drive a truck. And every one of us can be an Albert McMakin.
6: don't know and never be the same. Will you let my love be shown? Will you let my name be known? Will you let my life be Will you let me answer? So